narcissistic generation. Um, that's what I've entitled my message this morning, a narcissistic generation. Now, the older generation refers to the young generation as a narcissistic generation, right? We call the millennials um, narcissistic. They're just so full of themselves, right? Um, reality is, there's a survey done um, on participants between 13 and 70, you know? And um, what's been discovered is there's no generation more or less narcissistic, right? We're all actually self-absorbed. This is who we are. It's the nature of, uh, uh, it's our nature to be self-absorbed. Uh, what, what the researchers were saying is, we, we have faulty memories, right? We become oblivious to our youthful narcissism as we grow older. As we grow older, we just learn how to mask our self-absorbed lives because we've got other things to, as well to focus on, right? And we do lose our entitlement a little bit. We, we, we are more uh, maybe empathetic, all right? Um, so what's narcissism? Let me define it first. Excessive interest in oneself, excessive admi admi admiration of oneself. You're saying to yourself, no, nah, no, nah, I'm not like that, but I guarantee you, your neighbor is, all right? Um, the one sitting next to you. I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to the one sitting next to you, all right? What's narcissism? Selfishness, involving a sense of entitlement, a lack of empathy, an inflated sense of own importance, right? Now, so that, so that you're not offended today, just turn to your neighbor and say, he's not talking about me, right? Now, turn to your neighbor and say, he's talking about you. Ah. <laughs> uh. But you know what? Throughout biblical history, if you look at scriptures, you will find that every generation, all right, of God's people have always shown signs of being self-absorbed, right? And um, what is it about? Relating to God on our own terms. God on my terms, right? And that's throughout church history. And we still do it today. God on my terms, the gospel according to me, right? Because I tell you, if you want to see true unity, come and spend a day with me. Me, myself, and I are really one. The problem is when you hang around me, then we create disunity because you are not one with me. That's the problem. You are the problem. <laughs> of course. See, what a humble man. If everybody was like Eric, we'll all be wonderful because everybody agrees with me. God on my terms, that has always been the problem with God's people. All right? It started in the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. What did the serpent say to the, to the woman? Did God really say? Did God really say? Did God really say you must not eat of the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? What was that? It was an invitation to reinterpret what God said, right? Look, God said something, but come on, let's look at it again in our own eyes. Let's 
reinterpret God. God on my terms. Then you move on and you see the same thing in the Tower of Babel, right? Genesis eleven fourteen. Then they said, come, let's build a great city for ourselves with a tower that reaches into the sky. This will make us famous and keep us from being scattered all over the world. Look at these phrases. Let us build for ourselves so that we keep from being scattered. And what happened in the Tower of Babel? The Lord produced confusion, all right? How? By enabling them to speak multiple languages. They didn't speak these languages before. God enabled them to speak those languages. Why? So that they will be scattered. All right? Now, when you think about that, what immediately comes to your thinking? Acts chapter 2 was another time when God enabled men to speak another language. You remember that? Acts chapter 2? That was the reversal of the Tower of Babel, right? That's exactly what happened. But this time, when God enabled them to speak, Acts 2.4, everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit, began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability, right? Then you move on in verse 41, those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day about 3,000 in all. So instead of scattering, they were gathered this time, right? Multiple languages in the Tower of Babel scattered them. Multiple languages this time drew them together towards God, right? Acts 8, chapter 1, uh, Acts chapter 8, verse 1, a great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem, and all the believers except the apostles were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. Hang on, I thought once you're gathered, you'll build a tower again. No, God's plan is always to scatter. God always scatters his people, all right? You know what we do? We like to build towers for ourselves. We like to call ourselves a name and build. We are the Welcome Bay Community Church. Let's build, all right? But what happens on Monday after Sunday service? God actually plans to scatter. His plan for the church is always to scatter, all right? And then you look at verse 4 of chapter 8. But the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. The whole ultimate plan of God is so that not, not just for us to gather, but to gather in order to be scattered. To scatter for what? To preach the good news of Jesus Christ, right? God is a sower. A sower always scatters seed, right? And God scatters us like seed. And the greatest temptation of the church is to avoid being scattered. And you know how we avoid being scattered? We build towers for ourselves. The temptation of the Tower of Babel, right? And that is self-absorbed humanity. Again, you look at the golden calf. When we go to Exodus chapter 32, um, you've got to understand the context of the golden calf to really see the desperate um, condition of the human heart. So here is a people of God who were slaves 
in Egypt, the most powerful nation, then known nation in the world, all right? And Egypt had them in their claws. What God does, he sends a man with a stick. That's it, a man with a stick. And what happens? You know the story. Ten plagues later, all right, Egypt sets Israel free. And how do they cross? How do they get into their freedom? They see the most amazing miracle of their lifetime, right? The Red Sea parted as they crossed over, all right? And they were saved, redeemed. They were now God's people. What do they do after a while? Exodus 32:1. When the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down the mountain, they gathered, gathered around Aaron. Come on, they said. Make us some gods who can lead us. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. Isn't that amazing? That this is the condition of the human heart. That whenever we are stuck, whenever we, are, we have problems, whenever we've got issues in our own lives, the first thing that comes to mind is to, to go to God in our own terms. Right? Make a God. Make God in our image. That's what we do. That's narcissism, really. Making God in our own image. Right? And nothing has changed, dear friends. Nothing has absolutely changed in our human heart. Every generation is plagued with narcissism. We are all selfish. We, are all, we all feel entitled. We all are self-absorbed. We resist being in the image of God, but we want to make God in our own image. And that's the condition of the human heart. God in my own terms. I'll relate to you, God, but I'll relate to you in my own terms. What does it look like to relate to God in God's terms? God in God's terms. That's the gospel of according to Christ. The first gospel was the gospel according to me. Now let me share with you the gospel according to Christ. Right? And the gospel according to Christ is in Luke chapter 14, verse 25 to 27. I don't know how many times you have actually heard a sermon around this. As a preacher, I confess, I try not to go too often into the scripture. But look at the scripture and you'll understand why. Luke chapter 14, verse 25 to 27. I'll first read to you the New King James Version, which is closer to the structure of the original text. Then I'll read to you NLT, that the translators have taken a little bit of room to, um, to give an interpretation of that passage. So Luke 14, 25 to 27. Now, great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, I want you to, as you're reading this, I want you to put yourself in the listener's shoes when Jesus was speaking these words. You and I now have a good vantage point. We can 
look back and we know Christ is risen. We know he is Christ, all right? And we know what Christ has um, done for us. These people were listening to a man. They thought he was a man, right? And here's this man saying to them, if you want to be my disciple, all right, you must hate every relationship that you have, every relationship you hold close to you. You must hate that relationship. I tell you, when you hear somebody preach like that, you're going to turn off. It's just human nature. And that human nature is no. I won't because that will affect me. All right? So why does Jesus say this? I'll read to you the NLT version to give you a little bit of an idea. All right? But before I do that, do you see how, how Luke begins that passage? Now great multitudes went with him. Right? There was a large crowd. A large crowd following him. Now, the temptation when you have a large crowd is to keep the crowd. All right? It's one thing to build a crowd. But once you have a crowd, there is a momentum. I know this. We both, Arena and I, were part of a large church in Malaysia. All right? And once there is a large crowd, it builds momentum. Right? Everybody wants to come and see what's going on in this large crowd of people. All right? it, I call this a bandwagon Christian. A bandwagon Christian goes to where the action is. A bandwagon Christian goes to where the lights are, the, the shimmering lights. That's why we put some lights here. All right? We want the crowd. I'm kidding. For Jesus, the temptation of getting lost in the crowd was never there, right? Because he knew just because you have a crowd doesn't mean that we're doing the right thing. Popularity doesn't make it right, right? And so I like that he opened up reminding us there was a large crowd before Jesus said these words. Because these words are sure to diminish the crowd. All right? These are things that scatter people when you start talking like this. And so let me read to you um, the Living Translation to give you uh, a little bit of a commentary. And then I'm going to speak a little bit more. A large crowd was following Jesus. He turned around and he said to them, If you want to be my disciple, you must by comparison hate everyone else. Your father and mother, your wife and children, your brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. In other words, right, <coughs> if you hold on to this type of love, human love, right, and consider that as your basis of what true love is, you will never, ever experience the love of God. You need to treat human love, all right? When you compare human love and you compare God's love, it needs to be as clear as love and hate. Because human love is the reason why it stops you for tr from truly loving the ones you are trying to love. Any love outside God's love is self-absorbed love. That's why the Bible calls God love. God is love. 
He doesn't just show love. He doesn't just do love. God is love. He is the essence of love. And the only way you can understand love is to go to God and experience God. When you experience God, you experience true love. And it's only through the experience of God that you can truly love those that you're trying to love. It is out of this experiential experience with God that overflows true love to others. All right? So in other words, any other man-expressed love is really hate compared to God's love. And if you want to love your children, if you want to love your spouse, if you want to love your neighbor, if you want to love your colleagues, if you want to love your brothers and sisters, if you want to love yourself, the only way you will experience truly is God's love. Any love outside God's love is self-absorbed love. The only way to truly love self and others is to first experience the love of God. That's what firstly Jesus was trying to clarify. Don't compare human love and call it love. True love only comes from God. Then he says this. Not only does Christian discipleship requires you to hate in order to love, right? Hate human self-absorbed love in order to love the way God loves. But Christian discipleship also requires you to, to dying to self. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. For us, this is a bit strange, this sentence. But for those who lived in Jesus' time, it was quite common to see criminals who were sentenced to death carrying a cross and walking to the place where they will be crucified. And so through the day, right, they will walk from the courtroom in McLaren Street, all right, and they'll walk to wherever they're going to be crucified. And if you are passing that way, you'll see a man carrying his own cross and walking towards the place he's crucified, right? And you say, oh, that guy was sentenced to death. And if you were the man carrying your cross, what do you think is going on in your mind? As you carried the cross and you're walking towards, were you thinking, man, my wife didn't really cook a good breakfast for me. She knew this was my last day on earth. Couldn't she even, you know, cook up a nice breakfast, getting up late and say, okay, see you. No, you won't see me. I'm I've got to go. I'm carrying my cross. You think that was what running through his mind? You think what was running through his mind was how the neighbor was um, telling him off for parking in the wrong place? Right? The other day, man, that guy, I can't stand him. I can't stand my neighbor. I wish I could move house. He's carrying his cross to his death. The only thing that is probably going through his mind is, what is going to happen after this? What's my life after this? Right? And Jesus is saying, if you actually do not kill yourself, if, if you do not kill the self absorbed life you will never experience true discipleship you will never experience truly what eternal life is all about that's God in God's terms God in God's terms is only experiencing 
true love that comes from God. And out of that, you experience loving others. But God in God's terms is carry your cross daily. Follow him. Otherwise, you will not experience true discipleship. Paul puts it this way, the God on God term experience. Galatians 2.20 My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is a man carrying his cross daily. This is the man, this is what it looks like to carry your cross daily. Your focus is no longer on yourself. Your focus is no longer on people around you. Your focus is no longer that you have an empty tooth in your mouth. Your focus is totally on Christ. My old self has been crucified with Christ. No longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Every day, a life lived for God sounds like this. No longer I, but Christ. No longer I, but Christ. That you breathe your breath every day. Your mind, your heart, your life is saying to you, no longer I, but Christ. No longer I, but Christ. The other thing a God on God's terms life looks like is, I live. So how do I live? If it's no longer I, how do I live? I only know how to live me. If you take me away, how do I live? Paul says, this is how I live. I live by trusting the Son of God. I live by trusting Jesus Christ. Who is this Jesus to me? Paul explains it. He loved me and he gave himself for me. So I live by trusting this Jesus who loves me. I don't question that anymore. The moment I question that, that Jesus, do you really love me? The moment I question that, I become self-absorbed. Every day, I say to myself, yes, he loves me. We sang that song. He loves me, oh, he loves me. Oh, how he loves me. That's not self-absorbed. That's God-absorbed. That you live your life every day knowing beyond a shadow of doubt, Jesus loves me. We learned this as children if you went to Sunday school. We learned that beautiful chorus. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me because I feel him now. Yes, Jesus loves me because the Bible tells me so. Carrying the cross daily requires you to renounce whatever you feel is going on in your life and to say to yourself, it doesn't matter. I know one thing for sure. Jesus loves me. The second thing he says, I live not only by trusting that the Son of God loved me, I live by trusting that the Son of, Lord, Son of God gave himself for me. You know why I don't have to focus on myself anymore? Because God is focusing on me. He was so focused on you, 
Jesus Christ was so focused on you for 33 years of his existence on planet Earth, so focused on you that he made sure he kept this bargain with God that he will live a sinless life so that he would die on the cross for you. That's why you carry your cross daily and you say to yourself, self, you are a hindrance to my eternal life. You are a hindrance to me loving my family. You are a hindrance, self, you are a hindrance to me being who I truly am. So I carry that cross reminding me it's no longer I, but Christ. It's no longer I, but Christ. And then I live every day the how-to of living with God in God's terms is I trust Hold on to this trust. Jesus loves me. No matter what's going on today, Jesus loves me. No matter what's going on in my body, Jesus loves me. No matter what's going on in my relationships, Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. And I'll focus on that. And I also focus that he gave himself for me. I am his focus. He focused so much that he died for me. So I don't have to focus on myself. I'll focus on him who has a focus on me. So my dear friends, yes, I've got a big, big problem. My biggest problem is me. I am selfish. I feel entitled. I am self-absorbed. It is a condition that makes me foolishly relate to God in my own terms. But I know a remedy for this condition of mine. I'm going to remind myself every day that I am crucified with Christ. It's no longer I, but it's Christ in me. And then I'm going to live every day by trusting Jesus Christ. Trust that he loves me. No matter what, he loves me. And the more I experience his love, the more I can love others. I will live trusting him, trusting that he gave himself for me. I don't need to focus on me. Christ is focused on me. So I will focus on him since he is focused on me. I invite you to do the same. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon podcast. For more resources, or if you would like to support this ministry, visit us at activefaith.org.nz.